Well, here we are at the, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, you can think of it as a season within a season. So we're, we're still in Lent, but this week is special. Holy, the, the most holy week of the Christian calendar. So a season within a season. We could even go further and say it's a story within a story. A story that determines the outcome of every other story. Let me explain with a, a, film. <clears throat> a film. There's a, a brilliant and very underrated film that Anna and I have watched many times called Stranger Than Fiction. How many people have seen Stranger Than Fiction? Okay, good amount. Spoiler alert. I'm, gonna be, no, I'm not going to give the ending away, but I'm going to give a lot of you away. <laughs> but it's still worth watching. And there's a lot of, it's pregnant with meaning for this week, but I'm only going to give you a few of those, so you'll have fun watching it if you do end up watching it. The story starts out with uh, Harold Crick, played by uh, Will Ferrell, and he's an IRS auditor who lives a very scheduled life, counting every minute of every activity, brushing every stroke every time he brushes his teeth. So he lives a very scheduled and boring life. Until he meets Hannah, the baker. Uh, he has to audit her, and he starts to fall for her, and she's for him, eventually. And the day the romance begins is the day Harold encounters another story that determines his story to a degree. And so this is when he starts to hear this mysterious voice of another woman narrating his life as it happens. He comes to discover that this voice is the voice of a well-known author named Karen Eiffel, played by Emma Thompson, who's currently writing a story, strange enough, the story of Harold. And unknown to her, as he writes it, as she writes it, it happens to him in the story. Worst of all, though, it's made clear early on that Karen has determined that Harold is going to die in the very near future. And Harold finds out about this. And of course, it's very distraught. But all is now lost because Karen is struggling with writer's block. <laughs> she can't figure out how Harold is going to die, which is great for Harold. It gives him some more time to live and to try and figure out how to convince Karen. He's going to try and meet her and tell her to turn her tragedy into a comedy so that he can live. Because the fate of Harold is in her hands to the large degree. So, how does it all end? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I've already told you way too much. But hopefully this gives you a picture of something, of a way, a way a story within a story can determine that story, can determine everything else. <clears throat> How this story of Karen, no matter, Harold has some influence on Karen. He can meet her and talk to her and try to convince her. But ultimately, what Karen writes in her story is what's going to happen. It's going to determine what happens outside of that story and all other stories. And truth is stranger than fiction. 
So that's a sentence which has its source in a Lord Byron poem. Mark Twain has made use, of, made use of it as well. But it's where this film derives its name, Stranger Than Fiction, the full sentence being, truth is stranger than fiction. So Holy Week is more strange and more wonderful than this fictional film. Holy Week is the story within God's larger story. Holy Week is the story of all time, the greatest tragedy turned comedy of all time. It's the story of story that determines the outcome of every other story. Oh, that we would know it, and that it would fill our imaginations, and that we would live by it, be transformed by it. The story of Holy Week starts here on Palm Sunday with Jesus riding into Jerusalem not on a war horse, not in a flashy, state-of-the-art chariot, but humble and riding on a donkey. He's making his way to not a golden throne to receive a golden crown, but he's making his way to Jerusalem to a wooden cross to receive a crown of thorns. For soon, the hosannas turn into, let him be crucified. This is a day, this is a week of surprising reversals. Jerusalem at this time is all stirred up. There's a, a ton of anticipation in the air. People are shouting scriptures. They're laying down their cloaks for Jesus to ride on. They're laying down palm branches. As we've heard before, palm branches then meant something different than they mean now. They did mean victory and conquering, but they meant that usually through military might, which the Jews at this time would have understood for almost 200 years before Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and they're waving these palm branches, there was someone called Judas Maccabeus who, who began a revolt that ended up defeating the pagan invaders that were causing oppression to the Jewish people and cleansed the temple. And in celebration of that victory, the Hebrew people entered the city waving palm branches. So most likely, when these people are waiting palm branches, they have that memory in mind, and they have military expectations with those palm branches. They're thinking, this Jesus, here is God's long-awaited king, his anointed Messiah, and he's going he's gonna to conquer our Roman enemies through military might. But Jesus is a different kind of king. And his victory is a different kind of victory. His story is a different kind of story that redefines and reverses everything. The meaning of our symbols, what it means to conquer, what a meaningful life is. Jesus deliberately chose to ride into Jerusalem not on a war horse, but he tells his disciples to go get him a donkey. A symbol of peace and humility, because he's living by a different script. Matthew highlights that he's fulfilling, accomplishing, bringing to completion something recorded in the Old Testament from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And if you were a Jew, you would know, and if you knew your scriptures and you were hearing this or reading this, you would know what comes next, the next verse. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So this king, he not only rejects the war horse, riding on a donkey of peace, but somehow what he's about to do in Jerusalem is one day going to end all war. No more war in Ukraine. No more mass shootings in the U.S. A day when his peace is going to spend from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And we say, yes, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Give us something of that peace even now, here, in this day, in this hour. So how does he do this? Not with a powerful army, not with the latest technology, not with a lot of money, but in the way of humility, riding on a donkey to his death. A humble way and a redemptive death that's going to eventually make all things new. Bring in that peace. A loving, sacrificial death. So he doesn't come in and impose violence on people. He receives violence. He doesn't come in to kill his enemies. He comes and lets them kill him. All in order to save them. To love them. To bring his peace through his death to the ends of the earth. Palm branches used to symbolize triumph through military might, but now, because of this story, within the story, the story, branches now symbolize triumph through martyrdom. So if you look at religious art portraying martyrs, you're going to notice a lot of times there's a palm branch in there somewhere. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So to Italian in the second century. That's a different kind of conquering that Jesus introduced into the world. That gives new meaning to palm branches. It gives new meaning to suffering and pain. Tom Holland, the well-known historian I've mentioned before, gave a, an interview to Plow with Plow, and the title was 2,000 Years of Christian Strangeness. Truth is stranger than fiction. And in it, he highlights, he points out these works of art and particular human figures who show us how the meaning of Holy Week has changed a number of things, in particular in this interview, the meaning of suffering for different kinds of people in particular. So he starts off pointing out this work by Caravaggio. 
of the crucifixion of St. Peter, who according to tradition is, is crucified upside down. It's a really moving, arresting piece. But Tim, Tom Holland mentions that in Roman culture, this kind of painting would just never have been painted. They wouldn't paint, you don't talk about, think about paint crucifixions. That's a shameful thing. That shows the gods are against you, for sure. You don't think about that. You don't talk about that. You don't highlight that. Certainly you don't do that. You don't highlight someone who's a mere fisherman. Why would you do that in Roman culture? But here, in this painting, there's incredible detail of this crucifixion. There's incredible honoring of Peter paying attention to him because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because he is suffering in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And he is one of these leaders of Jesus for the church. And Jesus and Peter and those who come after him are going to follow in the way of this Lord. Jesus. And that's going to be in sharp contrast to the Caesars and, his, and their successors on the earth. And what suffering is, instead of imposing suffering on others, they are going to be willingly receiving suffering from others to extend this kingdom. So Peter's suffering is not his shame here. It's his honor in this kingdom. Because this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of divine suffering love. And because Jesus cares about simple fishermen like Jesus or like Peter. Because with Jesus, the last are going to be first. Let's give new meaning to suffering. Well, Tom Holland goes on to mention another story, the story of Blandina. She was a slave in the second century. And she was thrown into the arena in Lyon with her master, who was a very wealthy woman, and along with a bunch of other men who all died in martyrdom. But in the account given, the only one mentioned by name is Blandina. That would have been unheard of in Roman culture. Suffering, slaves, that's just the way it is. But with Jesus, Every suffering matters. And especially the least, the last, and the lost. Especially those who suffer in the likeness of Christ. So she gets noted out of all the people. She gets named. That would never have happened in Roman culture. Naming a female slave. Yet after Jesus, because of Jesus, that's exactly what starts to happen in history. In the church, and then eventually outside of the church. There's one more example given by Paul that I think is more relevant to us. It extends to those who are born into more privilege, we could say, who aren't going to suffer martyrdom in their lifetime properly. And the example he gives is, is Elizabeth of Hungary. Elizabeth lived in the 13th century. She was of royal birth, very royal, very wealthy, but she was inspired by Francis of Assisi, and was moved to identify with and try to emulate the sufferings of Christ. 
So she knew that the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first. So in wisdom, she follows her Lord, as we heard in Philippians, who humbled himself. No one was, in a sense, more privileged than Jesus, the Son of God at the right hand of God. And yet he humbled himself and became a servant to the point of death. So she decides to follow her Lord in that way. And Holland says, quote, she decides to work in a hospital, hugging lepers with their sores to her breast, mopping their brows. She feels that she is beckoned by the suffering of Christ. And Tom Holland says, that kind of behavior would have made no sense to anyone before the Christian period. Elizabeth's actions would have sounded pathological, insane. Yet, Colin says, he, she is clearly a precursor of all kinds of movements in our day that we just take for granted. But were begun by Jesus and continued with their followers. So he says, for example, she refuses to eat food that comes from her, her husband's peasantry that's been extorted from them. So if you want to put it that way, she will only eat food that's been ethically sourced. Because she cares for the vulnerable. Because Jesus did. And those who with her follow their Lord in this way have not only been transformed themselves, but have brought transformation to the Western culture and ideals. So that now there's a new ethical ideal in the Western world where when you have privilege and power, you are not supposed to use that to exploit others. That would have been the norm and understood in the Roman time. But no, you are supposed to use your power and privilege to serve the vulnerable. That's a new ideal. That's in our culture. We don't live it enough. But it's there nonetheless. Because of Jesus. Because of those who have followed him. Have promoted that. Lived that. Exemplified that. These are just a few examples of how the story of Holy Week has changed and reverse things, our symbols, the meaning of suffering, the way to conquer, what a meaningful life actually is. These are a few people who have lived their lives by this story and allowed it to transform them, transform them and, and through them the broader culture. Which story are we going to live by? It's going to fill our imagination. There's the old, worn-out me story with me at the center of the story. Me at the center, eating from the tree of life. Me deciding what is right and wrong. Sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Me deciding what is right and wrong and meaningful. Me living a comfortable life, undisturbed by the needs of the world. Me waving my palm branch with my own expectations for Jesus. To give those on the other political, theological, whatever spectrum, what they deserve. Yeah, Jesus. And me, well, I want that influence. I want that power so that people will notice me at the center. So that people will do what I want them to do. We can live by that old story, worn out story, or we can live by the Jesus story of Holy Week, with 
Jesus at the center, humble and riding on a donkey to his death. And us gathered around him, following him all the way into Jerusalem to his death. A death that forgives us and cleanses us of every way we have not followed him. And a way that empowers us and inspires us to live that way and follow him afresh. To follow him to that death and through that death to resurrection, back to the tree of life. Being filled with eternal life in this world with him at the center. If you're here this morning, you're most likely here to have that fill your imagination, to live by that story. May that be so from this Sunday and every day to next Sunday. Amen.